Chapter Nine, Part Two of How I Found Livingston. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Anna Simon. How I Found Livingston: Travels, Adventures, and Discoveries in Central Africa, Including Four Months' Residence with Dr. Livingston. By Sir Henry M. Stanley. Chapter Nine, Part Two. My life and troubles in Unyanyembe continued. August twenty seventh, Mirambo retreated during the night, and when the Arabs went in force to attack his village of Kazima, they found it vacant. The Arabs hold councils of war nowadays, battle meetings of which they seem to be very fond, but extremely slow to act upon. They were about to make friends with the northern Watuta, but Mirambo was ahead of them. They had talked of invading Marambo's territory the second time, but Marambo invaded Unyanyembe with fire and sword, bringing death to many a household, and he has slain the noblest of them all. The Arabs spend their hours in talking and arguing, while the Ujiji and Karagwa roads are more firmly closed than ever. Indeed, many of the influential Arabs are talking of returning to Zanzibar, saying, Unyanyembe is ruined. Meanwhile, with poor success, however, perceiving the impossibility of procuring Wanyamwezi pagazis, I am hiring the Wangwana renegades living in Unyanyembe to proceed with me to Ujiji, at treble prices. Each man is offered thirty doti, ordinary hire of a carrier being only from five to ten doti to Ujiji. I want fifty men. I intend to leave about sixty or seventy loads here under charge of a guard. I shall leave all personal baggage behind, except one small portmanteau. August 28th. No news today of Mirambo. Shaw is getting strong again. Sheikh bin Nasib called on me today, but, except on minor philosophy, he had nothing to say. I have determined, after a study of the country, to lead a flying caravan to Ujiji, by a southern road through northern Ukonongo and Ukabendi. Sheikh bin Nasib has been informed tonight of this determination. August 29th. Shaw got up today for a little work. Alas, all my fine-spun plans of proceeding by boat over the Victoria Nyanza, thence down the Nile, have been totally demolished, I fear, through this war with Marambo, this black Bonaparte. Two months have been wasted here already. The Arabs take such a long time to come to a conclusion. Advice is plentiful, and words are as numerous as the blades of grass in our valley. All that is wanting is decision." The Arab's hope and stay is dead. Kamis bin Abdullah is no more. Where are the other warriors of whom the Wangwana and Manyamwezi bards sing? Where is mighty Kisesa, great Abdullah bin Nasib? Where is Said, the son of Majid? Kisesa is in Zanzibar, and Said, the son of Majid, is in Ujiji, as yet ignorant that his son has fallen in the forest of Wuyankur. Shaw is improving fast. I am unsuccessful as yet in procuring soldiers. I almost despair of ever being able to move from here. It is such a drowsy, sleepy, slow, dreaming country. Arabs, Wangwana, Wanyamwezi are all alike, all careless how time flies. Their tomorrow means sometimes within a month. To me it is simply maddening. August 30th. Shaw will not work. I cannot get him to stir himself. I've petted him and coaxed him, I've even cooked little luxuries for him myself. 
and, while I am straining every nerve to get ready for Ujiji, Shaw is satisfied with looking on listlessly. What a change from the ready-handed bold man he was at Zanzibar! I sat down by his side to-day with my palm and needle, in order to encourage him, and to-day, for the first time, I told him of the real nature of my mission. I told him that I did not care about the geography of the country half as much as I cared about finding Livingston. I told him, for the first time, now, my dear Shaw, you think probably that I have been sent here to find the death of the Tanganyika. Not a bit of it, man. I was told to find Livingston. It is to find Livingston I am here. It is to find Livingston I am going. Don't you see, old fellow, the importance of the mission? Don't you see what reward you will get from Mr. Bennett if you will help me? I am sure, if ever you come to New York, you will never be in want of a fifty-dollar bill. So shake yourself, jump about, look lively. Say you will not die. That is half the battle. Snap your fingers at the fever. I will guarantee the fever won't kill you. I have medicine enough for a regiment here. His eyes lit up a little, but the light that shone in them shortly faded and died. I was quite disheartened. I made some strong punch to put fire in his veins that I might see life in him. I put sugar and eggs and seasoned it with lemon and spice. Drink, Shaw, said I, and forget your infirmities. You are not sick, dear fellow. It is only ennui you are feeling. Look at Salim here. Now, I will bet any amount that he will not die, that I will carry him home safe to his friends. I will carry you home also, if you will let me. September 1st. According to Tani bin Abdullah, whom I visited at his tembe in Maroro, Marambo lost two hundred men in the attack upon Tabora, while the Arabs' losses were five Arabs thirteen freemen and eight slaves, besides three tembes, and over one hundred small huts burned, two hundred and eighty ivory tusks, and sixty cows and bullocks captured. September 3rd. Received a packet of letters and newspapers from Captain Webb at Zanzibar. What a good thing it is that one's friends, even in far America, think of the absent one in Africa. They tell me that no one dreams of my being in Africa yet. I applied to Sheikh bin Nasib to-day to permit Livingstone's caravan to go under my charge to Ujiji, but he would not listen to it. He says he feels certain I am going to my death. September 4th. Shaw is quite well to-day, he says. Salim is down with the fever. My force is gradually increasing, though some of my old soldiers are falling off. Umgareza is blind. Baruti has the smallpox very badly. Sadala has the intermittent. September 5th. Baruti died this morning. He was one of my best soldiers, and was one of those men who accompanied Speak to Egypt. Baruti is number seven of those who have died since leaving Zanzibar. Today my ears have been poisoned with the reports of the Arabs about the state of the country I am about to travel through. The roads are bad, they are all stopped, the Rugarua are out in the forests, the Wakonongo are coming from the south to help Marambo, the Washenzi are at war, one tribe against another. My men are getting dispirited. They have imbibed the fears of the Arabs and the Wanyamwezi. Bombay begins to feel that I had better go back to the coast and try again some other time. We buried Baruti under the shade of the banyan tree, a few yards west of my tembe. The grave was made four and a half feet deep and three feet wide. At the bottom, on one side, a narrow trench was excavated, into which the body was rolled on his side, with his face turned towards Mecca. The body was dressed in a dhoti and a half of new American sheeting. After it was placed properly in its narrow bed, a sloping roof of sticks, 
covered over with matting and old canvas was made to prevent the earth from falling over the body. The grave was then filled, the soldiers laughing merrily. On the top of the grave was planted a small shrub, and into a small hole made with the hand was poured water, lest he might feel thirsty, they said, on his way to paradise. Water was then sprinkled all over the grave, and the gourd broken. This ceremony being ended, the men recited the Arabic fatah, after which they left the grave of their dead comrade to think no more of him. September 7th. An Arab named Mohammed presented me today with a little boy's slave called Dugu Mahali, my brother's wealth. As I did not like the name, I called the chiefs of my caravan together and asked them to give him a better name. One suggested Simba, a lion. Another said he thought Gombe, a cow, would suit the boy child. Another thought he ought to be called Morambo, which raised a loud laugh. Bombay thought Bombay Mdogo would suit my black-skinned infant very well. Ulimengo, however, after looking at his quick eyes and noting his celerity of movement, pronounced the name Kalula as the best for him. Because, said he, just look at his eyes, so bright. Look at his form, so slim. Watch his movements, how quick. Yes, Kalulu is his name. Yes, Bana, said the others, let it be Kalulu. Kalulu is a Kizawahili term for the young of the blue buck, Perpusilla antelope. Well then, said I, water being brought in a huge tin pan. Selim, who was willing to stand godfather holding him over the water, let his name henceforth be Kalulu, and let no man take it from him. And thus it was that the little black boy of Mohammed's came to be called Kalulu. The expedition is increasing in numbers. We had quite an alarm before dark. Much firing was heard at Tabora, which led us to anticipate an attack on Quihara. It turned out, however, to be a salute fired in honour of the arrival of Sultan Kitambi to pay a visit to Kaziwa, Sultan of Unyanyembe. September 8th. Towards night, Sheikh bin Nasib received a letter from an Arab at Mfuto, reporting that an attack was made on that place by Mirambo and his Watuta allies. It also warned him to bid the people of Kuhara hold themselves in readiness, because if Mirambo succeeded in storming Mfuto, he would march direct on Kuhara. September 9th. Mirambo was defeated with severe loss yesterday in his attack upon Mfuto. He was successful in an assault he made upon a small Wanyamwezi village, but when he attempted to storm Mfuto, he was repulsed with severe loss, losing three of his principal men. Upon withdrawing his forces from the attack, the inhabitants sallied out and followed him to the forest of Umanda, where he was again utterly routed, himself ingloriously flying from the field. The heads of his chief men slain in the attack were brought to Kwikuru, the boma of Mkaziwa. September 14th. The Arab boy Selim is delirious from constant fever. Shaw is sick again. These two occupy most of my time. I am turned into a regular nurse, for I have no one to assist me in attending upon them. If I try to instruct Abdul Kader in the art of being useful, his head is so befogged with the villainous fumes of Unyamwezi tobacco that he wanders bewildered about, breaking dishes and upsetting cooked dainties until I get so exasperated that my peace of mind is broken completely for a full hour. If I ask Faraji, my now formally constituted cook, to assist, his thick wooden head fails to receive an idea, and I am thus obliged to play the part of chef de cuisine. September 15th. 
The third month of my residence in Unyanyembe is almost finished, and I am still here, but I hope to be gone before the twenty-third instant. All last night until nine a.m. this morning, my soldiers danced and sang to the names of their dead comrades, whose bones now bleach in the forests of Wilyankuru. Two or three huge pots of pombe failed to satisfy the raging thirst which the vigorous exercise they were engaged in created. So, early this morning, I was called upon to contribute a shuka for another potful of the potent liquor. Today I was busy selecting the loads for each soldier and pagasi. In order to lighten their labour as much as possible, I reduced each load from seventy pounds to fifty pounds, by which I hope to be enabled to make some long marches. I have been able to engage ten bagazis during the last two or three days. I have two or three men still very sick, and it is almost useless to expect that they will be able to carry anything, but I am in hopes that other men may be engaged to take their places before the actual day of departure, which now seems to be drawing near rapidly. September 16th. We have almost finished our work. On the fifth day from this, God willing, we shall march. I engaged two more pagazis besides two guides, named Asmani and Mabruki. If vastness of the human form could terrify anyone, certainly Asmani's appearance is well calculated to produce that effect. He stands considerably over six feet without shoes, and has shoulders broad enough for two ordinary men. Tomorrow I mean to give the people a farewell feast, to celebrate our departure from this forbidding and unhappy country. September 17th. The banquet is ended. I slaughtered two bullocks and had a barbecue, three sheep, two goats and fifteen chickens, one hundred and twenty pounds of rice, twenty large loaves of bread made of Indian corn flour, one hundred eggs, ten pounds of butter, and five gallons of sweet milk were the contents of which the banquet was formed. The men invited their friends and neighbors, and about one hundred women and children partook of it. After the banquet was ended, the pombe, or native beer, was brought in in five-gallon pots, and the people commenced their dance, which continues even now as I write. September 19th. I had a slight attack of fever today, which has postponed our departure. Salim and Shaw are both recovered. About 8 p.m. Sheikh bin Nasib came to me, imploring me not to go away tomorrow, because I was so sick. Tani Sakburi suggested to me that I might stay another month. In answer, I told them that white men are not accustomed to break their words. I had said I would go, and I intended to go. Sheikh bin Nasib gave up all hope of inducing me to remain another day, and he has gone away, with a promise to write to Said Bokash to tell him how obstinate I am, and that I am determined to be killed. This was a parting shot. About 10 p.m. the fever had gone. All were asleep in the timber but myself, and an unutterable loneliness came on me as I reflected on my position and my intentions, and felt the utter lack of sympathy with me in all around. It requires more nerve than I possess to dispel all the dark presentiments that come upon the mind. But probably what I call presentiments are simply the impress on the mind of the warnings which these false-hearted Arabs have repeated so often. This melancholy and loneliness, I feel, may probably have their origin from the same cause. The single candle which barely lights up the dark shade that fills the corners of my room is but a poor incentive to cheerfulness. I feel as though I were imprisoned between stone walls. 
but why should i feel as if baited by these stupid slow-witted arabs and their warnings and croakings i fancy a suspicion haunts my mind as i write that there lies some motive behind all this i wonder if these arabs tell me all these things to keep me here in the hope that i might be induced another time to assist them in their war with Marambo. if they think so they are much mistaken for i have taken a solemn enduring oath an oath to be kept while the least hope of life remains in me not to be tempted to break the resolution i have formed never to give up the search until i find livingstone alive or find his dead body and never to return home without the strongest possible proofs that he is alive or that he is dead no living man or living man shall stop me only death can prevent me but death not even this i shall not die i will not die i cannot die and something tells me i do not know what it is perhaps it is the ever-living hopefulness of my own nature perhaps it is the natural presumption born out of an abundant and glowing vitality or the outcome of an overweening confidence in oneself anyhow and everyhow something tells me to-night i shall find him and write it larger find him find him even the words are inspiring i feel more happy have i uttered a prayer i shall sleep calmly to-night i have felt myself compelled to copy out of my diary the above notes as they explain written as they are on the spot the vicissitudes of my life at unanyembe to me they appear to explain far better than any amount of descriptive writing even of the most graphic the nature of the life i led there they are unexaggerated in their literality precisely as i conceived them at the time they happened they speak of fevers without number to myself and men they relate our dangers and little joys our annoyances and our pleasures as they occurred end of chapter 9 part 2